scripture reading this morning as we've looked at portions of the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, where in verse 15 he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So the title is Walking in Wisdom. This is the sixth and final time Paul will use the metaphor of walking in this letter. We're to walk in good works. We're to walk worthy of our calling in unity. We're to walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. We're to walk in love. We're to walk as children of light. And now Paul, in this final metaphor, beginning in verse 15, says we're to walk circumspectly as wise, not as fools. Walking in wisdom. See then that you walk is the imperative mood. In the original language, it's see circumspectly that you walk. So the command here Paul is giving to his audience is like a wise soldier that's walking in a foreign land who's on the lookout for a minefield. And in wisdom and his training, he can avoid the minefields where the foolish man, the foolish soldier just walks carelessly and aimlessly. And as a result, he walks right into a minefield and suffers great loss, loss of limb or loss of life. Paul is telling his audience, similarly, that we are walking in a minefield of ideas, in a minefield of error. That's why he says, see then, see therefore, that you walk carefully, diligently, Accurately, looking all around at the circumstances as you proceed to walk through life. What are some of the dangers? Well, he's told us of two in particular. In verse 14 of chapter 4, he said that we be not children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, by the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So there are men, there are ideas, there are ideologies, there's theologies that are designed to captivate you and lead you astray. So as wise people, we're looking for those minefields. And then secondly, in chapter 5, verse 6, he said, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things, vain words, the wrath of God is abiding on the children of disobedience. What vain words? The vain words that would say to you in verse 3 that God is okay with fornication. He's okay with impurities and uncleanness. And He is okay with LGBTQ+. And He's okay with covetousness. That's deceptive, vain words. Because of those things and many others, the Bible tells us, the wrath of God is coming on the children of disobedience. See then, therefore, that you walk wisely and carefully, lest you and I suffer spiritual damage. Spiritual damage. Not necessarily physical, but in the spiritual realm. I think it's important to point out the structure that Paul uses in these verses. I think he does this repetition to further plant this in our memories. He uses two Greek words three times. May not... Allah, but instead. Be not may, but rather wise. Be not fools, rather be wise. Be not unwise, rather be understanding. Be not drunk, rather be, but rather filled with the Spirit. This structure helps us plant it in our memories. Perhaps you will not forget that now, simply because of the fact we repeated it three times. Also, every time he gives the may Allah contrast, he is giving further clarity as to what it means to walk in wisdom. In other words, with each statement of wisdom, the next statement is what is necessary for the other one to be put in place. For example, be not fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Now, whatever that means, in order to do that, you've got to understand the will of the Lord. And whatever that means, in order to do that, you've got to be filled with the Spirit. And then he follows with four imperative results, with four participles, speaking, singing, thanking God, and submitting in the fear of the Lord. 
Verses 15 through 21 serve as a segue for Paul in leading into the relationships in the church. Not just filled with the Spirit, but this wisdom, this redeeming, this understanding, this being filled is a segue for wives, husbands, children, family, parents, servants, employers, and employees. All the relationships in church and in life. So these passages become critical beginning and launching out into verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 19, concluding with the whole armor of God. This last metaphor of walking captures all of those verses. So the the structure then helps us now look at this wisdom. And the uh, sections under this heading of walk in wisdom would be those three participles. Redeeming, understanding, and being filled. When that's happening... And, and you're walking and making progress in those areas, then in verse 22, you will find these things start to take shape in your life, along with the participle speaking, singing, thanking, and submitting. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's first look at the first thing that Paul says under the heading of wisdom, don't be fools, rather be wise, redeeming the time. So let's de- define a few words here. Redeeming. Is a compound word, ex, agora is the root word. Ex means out of or away from. Agora is an ancient marketplace. In our current time, we would point to Bridge Street, the marketplace. So the idea here is to buy up the time out of a situation or condition for one's own use. Now, if we just use the marketplace, you would go to Bridge Street And you would buy an article of clothing out of a condition which is owned by another person, the retailer. And then you would buy it and take it out of the marketplace so that you may use it for your own. Now in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the scripture reading this morning, they used a form of that word, ex agora, ex argorizo. In Daniel 2 verse 8, when Nebuchadnezzar told the astrologers, the magicians, and the sorcerers to interpret not only the dream, but tell him what the dream was that troubled his spirit. And as they pressed him, he said, if you do not tell me the dream and the interpretation, you will be literally, this is not figurative, hacked in pieces. Your bodies will be dismembered. And that's what Babylonian soldiers did. He said, I know of a certainty in verse 8, you would gain the time, you would redeem the time. That's a form of the same word in the Septuagint, which is a Greek word, as we find in our text. You would gain the time because you know the thing has gone out from me. That is, you know the decree of you being hacked up is firm and I'm not changing my mind. And if I tell you the dream, you're just going to gain the time. So let's apply that definition. You will buy out of, you will buy time out of a condition called the king's decree of death, and having no time. They didn't have any time. He wanted to know now. So they were going to gain the time. They were going to buy up or buy out the time out of a condition of the king's death sentence so they could use it for themselves to do what? Deliver themselves from death. How? You tell us a dream, and we're going to delay. We're going to gain the time. And what's going to happen, we think, is you're going to fit, forget that you even had a dream. And certainly the details will be fuzzy. We'll come up with some corrupt idea, and we'll tell you what the dream uh, interpretation is, and you won't have a clue. Maybe you even forget that you wanted the interpretation. And so the king says, you will redeem the time. Now that's in the negative sense. This word in the New Testament is only used four times in the Bible. It's used in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law... Being made a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham through the Spirit might come upon the Gentiles. So Christ has, by His own blood, purchased out of, away from, a condition called the curse of the law, so that He may use us for Himself, for the glory of His name. But what is Paul saying here in this particular context? Well, if we apply that definition, Paul is saying to redeem the time. We are buying the time out of a condition, out of the grip of something that has a grip on it. What has a grip on the time? Or more pertinently, what has a grip on your time? 
What grips your time that keeps you from being wise rather than foolish? Well, we have to define another word. We have to ask the question first, what time is it? And then secondly, what has a grip on that time? What time is it? Well, the time here is not chronos time. It's not chronological time. It's not successive time, which means seconds, minutes, days, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades. That's not the Greek word here. It's kairos time. It's an age, a season, an era. Now, if you listen to geologists, which we don't listen to geologists, you understand that, right? These are the guys that are scientists that break up the earth's history in ages, seasons, eras, or kairos. That's the word here. Now, they would tell you, you live in the Megalayan age. That's even hard to say, isn't it? For some 4,200 years, you've been living in this age, or the earth has been in this age, based on some mega drought that took place that defines an epoch, an era, or an age for geologists. But we listen to Paul. What does Paul, what does God say through Paul's pen, the age you're living in? Because the days are evil. See, redeeming the time, why? Because the days, which are part of the time, are evil days. Now, this is not physical evil. This is moral evil. We are redeeming the time. We are buying, we are gaining the time out of a condition that has a grip on it called evil days. This present evil age. And Paul has already told us who has a grip on that, hasn't he? In Ephesians 2.2. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. According to the ion of this world, the age, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the children of disobedience. We know what that spirit is. We've talked about it before. Among whom we all had our conversation in the past, before conversion, before knowing Christ, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as others. The God of this world, in this present evil age, in Paul's audience, in the age that we live in now, has a grip on the minds, and the thoughts, and the imaginations, and the ideas of humanity. That's to live as fools, and not as wise. How do you fulfill the desire of a mind? All your thoughts, all your ideas, all your imaginations, all your plans are geared toward the fulfillment of your own pleasures. God has called you out of that so that you would walk in wisdom toward those that are without redeeming the time. That's the parallel in Colossians 4. So that you would redeem the present age, out of its slavery to the grip of the God of this world who's blinding the minds of those that believe not. So we're not walking as Gentiles are in the vanity of their minds, but we're being renewed in the spirit of our minds. How are you using your minds and your thoughts What's captivating your minds? Are you living as a foolish person or as a wise one that's redeeming time? Your own time in this present age. Paul said in Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for us to deliver us from this present evil ion age according to the will of God the Father. So we live in a present evil age and there are many different ways The God of this world grips our minds or can grip our minds to pull us back into that foolish way of living that we all lived prior to the mercy of God awakening us to the glory of Christ. Redeeming the time. Now how would that happen? Well, we've got to understand that we live in an age within an age. We live in a time within a time. We live in a kingdom within a kingdom. 
This present age is all, uh, all of us live in that kingdom. We see it, we know it, we look at our culture, and we see the confusion, the chaos, and the moral evil that's taking place. But we have to understand God has called us into a different age or a different kingdom. And I think it's important to review this here. Because this, when this grips our minds, it'll start to have an impact in your life and in this wisdom that Paul is talking about. Now let's go back to Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, 9 and 10. And 11, where Paul begins what he wants to say in this entire letter with the words, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein, in the riches of that grace, he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The wisdom that we need to walk in, God has abounded and lavished us with wisdom and insight having made known unto us the mystery of His will, the mystery that was hidden in ages past, but is now revealed in Christ, according to the good purpose which He purposed in Himself. Now let's take the word prudent and wisdom. It means insight. Insight means you have the ability to see with penetration into something. Some of you older people might remember in the 1990s, the computer-generated abstract art called Magic art pictures, autostereograms are what they called. A computer abstract image of two images slightly at different angles could be produced on the computer. Now, at one level, it was one dimension. It just looked like a bunch of lines, patterns repeated in colors. But either using a device or just crossing your eyes slightly, you could peer and penetrate into that picture and the two images would converge And out would come a 3D image. So that in the picture where you can't see this 3D image, you could penetrate and have insight and would appear an eagle or a butterfly or some object. Now apply that illustration to the word wisdom and prudence. And think of two people standing at the same abstract art, magic eye art, this computer generated image. One is a fool and one is wise. Now, the fool looks at the picture and looks at the picture and he only sees a one-dimensional object. That's the way he views life. He has no insight. There's no prudence or wisdom. He can't see anything in the picture. It's just abstract lines and patterns and art. Paul says, don't be that way. Don't live your life in the one dimension, fulfilling the desires of your own mind. God has lavished you with insight. Now take the wise man who's looking at the same picture. He sees the abstract art. He sees the present evil age. He sees it, but he looks with insight through it. And he sees another image emerging from the picture. What is the image? Verse 9, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ whether there be things in heaven or things in earth, even in Him. The administration of the completion of the kairos, the ages past, age of empires, age of kings, age of Moses, or the Mosaic age, all brought to its closure at the arrival of Christ and being brought to its closure so that in Christ all things would be summed up. That He would be the focal point. So that the image that would emerge in the fullness of times is the image that you have insight to, the image of Christ. Now this image is the head, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians. And this head has a body. And so now in this current, present church age that God has implemented with the coming of Christ, you have been given insight, wisdom, and prudence that you may live out this wisdom in a way That redeems the time. Because you can see something that other people can't see. By His wonderful, marvelous grace. So so what is this wisdom in Ephesians 3.10? To the intent, Paul says, this is why I'm a minister. So that all men would see, all people out of the nations would see. What is the fellowship of the mystery? To the intent that now to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God. Walk in wisdom. Redeem the time. 
God has opened your eyes to His plan, His program, and His purposes. The present evil age, which is under the grip of the devil, is working against His purposes, against His plan, and against His program. How is God going to implement His program, His plan, in the world, through the head? Through His body. And that's you. This means everything in your life. This will transform everything that we are as a church. Because we're not just looking one-dimensional anymore. Well, there's evil in this culture. This is a present evil age. We see an image emerging in chapter 4. The Christ who will fill all things. We see He's the head of the church. Where Colossians says, Paul says, He will have the preeminence in the body. That's the image. And as we see Him and this wisdom... We are then empowered to redeem the time and rescue or to buy out away from the time, the season we live in, what grips it in its slavery, our minds, and then use our minds for what? The wisdom of God. So that God's multifaceted wisdom would be put on display where? In the church. We live in the church age. We live in the present evil age. And God is accomplishing His purposes in the church as we live in the present evil age by redeeming the time. Where is your mind? Are you using it in a way that advances the kingdom of darkness? The kingdom of this world, the present evil age? Are you sucked into the current culture and the way they think, and what they want, and how they fulfill the desires of their own minds? Are you being renewed? You see, Paul says, not to be fools, but rather to be wise. It's imperative that we are redeeming, present participle, the time, the season that we live in. And that's going to mean living carefully, walking carefully, looking at all the circumstances, having the insight through God's Word that God helps us then to rescue time for His use and His glory rather than living time as we did in times past. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work, the time when we were under the wrath of God, even by nature, but God in His mercy rescued, quickened, delivered, and then Gave us the insight. You have this insight if you're a believer. That's the first thing Paul says. Redeeming the time. Because the days. Which are part of the age we live in. Are evil. Number two. Now the second one then. Is necessary to fulfill the first one. Redeeming the time. Wherefore. Be not unwise, but rather understanding what the will of the Lord is. So when we're understanding the will of the Lord, that helps us to redeem the time. Now understanding here is more than just mental comprehension or intellectual insight. Surely when we understand, even as Christians, we are understanding with our natural minds. We think, we imagine, we have ideas And those are either in harmony with God's Word. We're proving what is acceptable to the Lord. Or they're out of sync with it. We make the correction. So so there's, there's natural thinking, but it's not just natural. It's spiritual. We are understanding what the will of the Lord is. The Lord here would be the Lord Jesus Christ. His will would be what He wants, what He desires, what He wishes for your life. Understanding here means to join two things together. In classical Greek, it was used of two armies on the battlefield coming together for war. Or two friends that would come together for agreement. The question is, what's coming together in our understanding? Well, one is clearly the will of the Lord. That's one thing. But that must come together in something in your mind and in your thinking. Right? If you look up the Greek word, you'll find this is one of the nuances. The perception of the thing perceived. We join together the perception 
of what is being perceived. What is being perceived is the will of the Lord, but the perception means to know and have cognizant awareness through the senses. Now, physically, we know that to mean taste, touch, sight, smell, sound. But this is not physical. So our perception in the mind is a spiritual perception of the thing perceived, which is the will of the Lord. How would that work? Now, just to connect it with what Paul said in Colossians, a parallel text in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, he would say, For which cause we cease not to pray for you ever since we heard of your love in the Spirit, that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So this understanding where the thing, there's perception united with the thing perceived, it's spiritual senses. Let's think about some of those senses. Taste. Does the will of God taste in your mind and soul like fresh baked bread or like stale bread? That's a spiritual understanding. The perception of taste of the thing perceived is the will of God. What does the will of God taste like in your soul? Is it blah? Does it taste like bread, the bread of life? What does the will of God smell like in your mind and soul? Does it smell like roses? Does it smell sweet? Does it smell like coffee brewing in the morning? Some of you get that. Okay, like cinnamon rolls in the oven that the aroma is wafting you to the oven? Or is it a smell that you just want to get out of the house? Now here's your test of understanding what the will of the Lord is. And this is not a test to be applied as something that happens universal all the time. We understand the will of God can sometimes be ouch, hard, challenging. The old man doesn't taste it like that. He doesn't smell it like that. But the new man... If you're a believer, that is created in all righteousness and true holiness, tastes it, smells it, touches it in his mind. Does the will of God in your soul feel like the warmth of the sun or a cold winter day? That you just want to get out of the cold? Or are you drawn to the spring sunshine? And the roses that are budding. This is what Paul means by understanding. It's not just, yeah, I know what he says. I get that. No, we're drawn spiritually. We understand. We have a perception with the spiritual senses that unites with the will of God that draws us in. That's how we want to walk. The will of God for your life or whatever he says in this text or in the Bible is it something that sounds good to you to hear God command you and say, look, I don't want you to do that. This is my will. This is not my desire for you. In fact, this is my desire for your life. Does that sound like the music of heaven or like clanging cymbals or like loud music in a car that some people listen to? Maybe some of you... <laughs> I don't have good hearing if I just confess today because of that in a prior time. So I wouldn't recommend it. It's just like... See? All of this imagery are the spiritual senses that you need to understand the will of the Lord. And guess what? You don't redeem the time because your mind is drawn back into the present evil age rather than using it in the church age as this book is outlining, God wants us to use our minds. He has purchased your mind. And so to redeem it means we need to understand it. We need to press toward understanding it in a spiritually perceptive way. So not just insight. Well, I see the 3D image. I, I love the way that looks. That sight, the sense of sight. Does the will of God look like a treasure to you? At least sometimes, not all the time. That would be heaven, wouldn't it? 
Do you see it as something valuable? Or as Paul said, something good, something acceptable, something perfect. Romans 12, 2. Because you're, you're proving it. You see it with a spiritual understanding. I think you can see if that's not happening, then, then what are you doing with your mind? How did you live this last week with your mind? Was it given to the fulfillment of your own thoughts? Was it given over to doing everything 24-7? And to what you thought was a good idea to live, what you think is a good idea to do, and what you think will bring you maximum fulfillment in this present evil age? Oh, how we need understanding, don't we? See, this is the language of worship, isn't it? We talk about spiritual senses, taste, smell, touch, sight, hearing in the mind. We're talking about worship. Peter uses similar words in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 2, where he says, But desire the sincere milk of the Word. Don't just read the Word. Long for it. Now, when a newborn babe drinks milk, there's a... Longing for more, isn't there? That's a taste issue. You've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. You've experienced new birth. You're a newborn babe. It's a good thing in First Peter 2. So desire milk so that you may grow. If you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. How do you taste Grace. With your mind and your soul and your spirit. That's how you taste it. Since you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming? Where are you coming? Are you going back to the current age and culture that you live? Are you drawn back to the taste and the sounds and the smells of a prior life? Are you coming to the living stone? Oh he's, dis- oh, he's rejected of men. But he's precious. What does this look like? Jesus is of high value. He's a treasure. See the words that Peter used? That's all spiritual understanding. That's, that's not a physical thing. Is Jesus Christ of great value to you? Do you treasure him? When you think of the fact that He gave His life for you to redeem you from the wrath of God. He gave His soul for you. He gave His body for you. He gave His mind for you. He gave His affections for you. He gave His will for you. He gave His person for you. So that you could understand and even Love the will of God for you because you understand that it's not something that God is trying to impose on you with a sense of I'm trying to make you miserable. I don't want you to have any happiness. I don't want you to have any joy. No, God knows forever what it means to be the happy God because that's what He is. He's the blessed God. He's the Makarios, the happy God. So to see the will of God, and it is a command, right? <clears throat> I mean, I never used to smell my parents' commands that way. I I didn't taste them that way. I didn't hear them that way. I didn't see them that way. And they smelled like stench to me. Right? But the will of the Lord is good. It's righteous. It's perfect. Now, what are you objecting to? Can you go to some part of the Bible and say, I just don't think that's right. I don't even think that's good. No, Jesus loved you and gave Himself for you. For His own use, so that you could redeem the time from this present evil age, use your mind for His glory by understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now let's test it just for a moment. Some of the winds and doctrines that are blowing in our society today that are tripping up Christians are... Critical race theory and egalitarianism. Critical race theory wants to break down the power structures that they think oppress society. That's the underlying uh, sentiment of that. Power structures like what? Family and men. 
being the head of the house. Right? Egalitarianism in the church says that we're all equal. Men and women are equal in worth and in salvation, which complementarianism, which is the counterpart, says that's right. Complementarianism says, yes, but we have different roles in the church and in the home. Egalitarianism says, no, we don't. Women can be pastors and women can lead the home if they have the capacity to do so. When we're understanding the will of the Lord, here's the test. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands in the Lord. That's not egalitarianism. That's not critical race theory. They want to tear that down. That's oppressive to women. Women, how does that smell to your mind and your soul? Is that a waft of fresh air or is that like a stench in your nostrils? If you're listening to the winds of doctrine that are blowing in our culture, eventually it's going to be a bad smell. It's going to taste bad. You'll spit it out of your mouth. And Christians are already spewing that text out of their mouth. They're just stretching it, making it something God didn't intend. All right, husbands, let's give you a test. Are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? Now, brothers, enough with the excuses of being a sinner and, you know, we can't do it like Christ. That's not what the text says. That won't fly with Jesus. I think he knows you're a sinner. I think he's got it by now, right? And he knows I am too. So, out with the excuses. Are you promoting, encouraging, fostering your wife like a fragile vessel? And your energy is directed toward her to love her as Christ loved the church, then we need to repent. See, egalitarianism, critical race theory, that ought to be ripped right out of the Bible. That's archaic. Do you understand the will of the Lord? Men, do you smell that as an aroma because of who Christ is, not because of the performance of your wife, not because she's performing so well, not because he's performing so well, but because Christ has bid you live this way. This is wisdom. Children, do you understand the will of the Lord to obey your parents in everything they say, exception of sin? I don't know anybody here that purposely tell their children to sin. Now, maybe you have. And you need to repent. Inadvertently we may have, but I think by and large the parents here want to command that which is good and right. And we don't get it right always. But God didn't use that as a caveat. So well, if they get it right, if they get it right, you just go along and submit. No, honor them. How does that smell to you, young people? Give them honor because your Savior has bid you to do so. No, we're not worthy of honor. No, we, we show it many times. Christ said, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is right. It's right in the Lord. Now honor them. Show them value. I'm just going to leave that to you to figure out ways to do that. Because I don't have time to go over that. Workers. Do you understand the will of the Lord in the workplace that you're to do your work as unto the Lord, not being a men pleaser with eye service, but pleasing the Lord, doing the will of God from the heart, not complaining, working eight hours for eight hours pay, not stealing, not taking anything home, being the best worker in the sight of the Lord and representing Him as an ambassador in the workplace? That's the will of the Lord. How does that smell under your current boss? which is mean-spirited, maybe doesn't have a clue, and yet God says, I want you to submit to that. Now, He uses masters and slaves, but we translate that to employees and employers. And by the way, are you a master? Do you have a business? Then you give them what is just and right, forbear threatening, because you have a master in heaven. You see what Paul is saying? See, when we understand the will of the Lord... It's not stench. It's not terrible. It's not something we're trying to rewrite. We're receiving what God has said. Not because of the people over us. Because He says, submit yourselves to one another. So the roles you have in complementaryism, marriage, or in family, or in the workplace, submit to those roles by understanding what the will of the Lord is. Redeeming the time, understanding 
and then move out as a church in submission to the roles that God has ordained for us to do so. Because even Christ Himself submits to the Father. He is co-equal with God. He is God in the flesh, but He's come under the authority of God the Father. And what is the will like to Jesus? What's God's will like to Jesus? I want you to die for those sinners. It's an aroma of a sweet smell. Not because of the horrible death. We don't understand how horrible crucifixion was. But because it's your will, Father. And I delight to do thy will. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And what about you single people? You say, I left you out. No, I didn't. You have a family. You have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and lands and houses, Jesus said. So you be part of the family of God. And you serve Christ, understanding what the will of the Lord is, rather than being foolish and unwise and being pulled back into the culture of this present evil age. Now, the will of God is not going to just smell good to us because our default is the old man deception. He's deceitful according to the lust. So sometimes it just doesn't smell good. How can we walk in a way that it's more agreeable, that the perception is put together with the thing perceived so that our spiritual senses are united with God's will and that we're moving out in these roles? By the next point. Now you see the point of the contrast with may Allah. Be not, but rather redeeming the time. Be not, but rather understanding the will of the Lord. Be not, but rather filled with the Spirit. We will never apprehend the will of God like that as more than an intellectual exercise Unless we are being filled with the Spirit of God. So let's look at our next and final point. Verse 18. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves or to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things. Now, what that means in the Greeks is this. Giving thanks always for all things. Unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Wives, husbands, children, parents. Train your children. Servants, masters. So to be filled with the Spirit then is key to understanding and redeeming the time. So what does this mean? Well, notice the contrast. Don't be drunk with wine in excess. Some translations say, which is debauchery, excessive, but be filled with the Spirit. So so what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The word with is a preposition to be with or by, could tell us that I think the Spirit is both the agent and the content of the filling. He's the one filling us, but He's inside of us, and He's part of the content of what we're being filled with. The word filled means exactly the opposite of the contrast that Paul gives us in being drunk. When you're filled with wine to the excess, you are controlled by the substance. Incidentally, alcohol is not a stimulant, it is a depressant. You lose control of the faculty of understanding. Man at his best, even in a natural sense, is lost because it's a depressant, not a stimulant. And so now the person is being foolish, unwise, because they're intoxicated and they've lost all control of their faculty of understanding. See, A foolish man that's drunk cannot redeem the time He cannot understand the will of the Lord. He will not be filled with the Spirit. See, these are counterparts to being filled with the Spirit. So don't be controlled 
by wine, rather be controlled by the Spirit. That's the counterpart. So to be filled with the Spirit means we are being controlled by the Spirit. You can see this language throughout Scripture. In the book of Acts, the Pharisees were filled with indignation. That means wrath was ruling them. What they said, what they did, when they were filled with indignation, was because they were controlled by wrath. Likewise, when you're controlled by the Spirit, then what you're saying... Or shall I say, what you're speaking, what you're singing, what you're giving thanks about, and what you're submitting to is owing to the Spirit's work of filling. So you can see how desperate we are to have the Spirit filling us. We are desperate to be controlled by the Spirit, or we cannot walk in a way that's wise. What does this mean further? If you're controlled by the Spirit, what what does that mean? Does that mean you're robotic and mechanical? No, it doesn't. I think the best description of being filled with the Spirit, with its counterpart in this text, is, is why the first restaurant or the first bar ever, ever did mark out a period of time of the day and give drinks for half price and call it what? Happy Hour. Now that's not by accident. Why do you think they did that? Because people want to be happy and they look to a substance to get there in excess, drunkenness. And when you're controlled with the Spirit, then what's the counterpart? There's a happiness in the, in the Lord. It's spiritual, which means all conditions external could be totally unhappy. There could be nothing in your life. What anybody would look at and say, well, that's a happy guy. It's the Spirit. When He's controlling us, we're having a fulfillment and a kind of spiritual happiness that's not dependent on what's happening. That's where the word happiness comes from, happenstance. But it's dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is. Now, if we look at Ephesians chapter 3... <clears throat> We get a little more insight as to what it means to be filled in terms of this fulfillment or contentment. Paul will use the word in his prayer, filled again, which means to diffuse one's soul. I'm just going to stay with my prior illustration because I think it fits. To diffuse one's soul like a diffuser in a room. What's the aim of the diffuser? It's going to permeate the entire room with the aroma of whatever's in the diffuser. To be filled with the Spirit is the Spirit so shape you in your mind, in your heart, that, that the Spirit's work of filling you is diffusing the inner man. Now that's what Paul's going to say here. Chapter 3, verse 13. Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of chapter 3 of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Now, if you're being filled with the Spirit, the Spirit is strengthening you with might in the inner man. That's your will, affections, your your preferences, your, your mind, the inner person. So the first thing you need to do to be filled with the Spirit is get down on your knees. Like Paul did unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you pray. See, if you could do this without prayer, you don't need prayer, you don't need Jesus, you don't need a Savior. Look, just just go do this. Go be wise. Go redeem the time. Go understand God's will, and just go be filled. It is imperative as a church. That we make the forefront of our prayers to be strengthened with all might by His Spirit in the inner man. See? You can be sick and not have physical strength and have none of this strength. So as we pray, Lord, give that person physical strength. That's not the most important thing. It's never the most important thing. This is the most important. Lord, fill them with your spirit. Strengthen them with your might in the inner man. And then, Lord, would you heal them of that physical sickness. 
We get that inverted so often. The priority is, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and then Lord, give us some food. That is not how we think, is it? Lord, just give me food, give me a good job, and then, yeah, do this for your glory, you know, if that works out. Oh no, Jesus said, the priority is the name of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God, and then you get some food. So the priority, if we're to be filled with the Spirit, is to pray the church that's on its knees, figuratively, if you get on your knees, literally, if that we're asking, Lord, fill us with your spirit, because God said He'll give the Spirit to all that ask Him. Again, I take that to mean He'll give the Spirit to all that ask Him. So if we're going to live out complementarianism in marriage and all the things we find in Ephesians 22, 522 to 6:19, we've got to be praying. Paul did it. More in this epistle, I think, than any other epistle. Three times he broke out in prayer. It's like he's saying, Lord, I know this is impossible, so I'm just going to pray right now. Lord, I just said something way above my head that nobody can do, so let's pray. All right, what's he praying? He would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might in his, by his spirit, the inner man. So if you're being filled, you're being strengthened. What does that mean? How does that feel? If I could use that word. What is my experience of being strengthened with all might by His Spirit in the inner man? Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That's the experience of being filled with the Spirit. That Jesus, who is there, would be there by faith. See, He's there on a day when you're not walking by faith. If you're a believer. But we want Him to be there in a strengthened way by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. These are perfect tense, present tense verbs. Which means you having been grounded. You having been rooted. That's already happened once for all. Never to happen again except the results of that are repeated. So whatever this strengthening is. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. It's because having been rooted, having been grounded, now here's the result of something that will never be repeated in the past. So that's done. You're rooted, you're grounded. Here's what flows out of that. That you may be able. When you're being strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit and Christ is dwelling in your heart by faith, having been rooted, having been grounded, you're laying hold Comprehend means to take possession of something. That needs to be repeated every time you're filled. You are taking possession of what? The breadth, the length, the depth, and height. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. That you may be filled, there's our word, diffused. Filled with the Spirit. You might be filled with all the fullness of God. So our experience of being filled is to be strengthened. That Christ is dwelling in our hearts by faith. So that we're comprehending, laying hold on the love of Christ. Which passes knowledge. Now you know when you ship something by these shipping companies. You're, you're, you're doing it by dimensional weight, not weight. So if you're going to ship a Bible to someone, you don't want to put it in a big box because you're going to pay more because it's dimensional weight. What's the dimensional weight of the fullness of God? You know, you get the length, depth, you get the dimensional weight. The breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. What are, what's the dimensional weight of the fullness of God? It's infinite. How do you know the dimensional weight and get filled with the fullness of God? You start being diffused with it. If you're in an infinite room, you just start walking out knowing it. And what's the upshot? The love of Christ that you're laying hold on as the Spirit fills you and strengthens you is a delight and a joy and a being satisfied in Christ's love. That's The work of the Spirit. 
We're redeeming. We're understanding. Because we have to be filled with the love of God and the, the fullness of God. God is love. And as we move out in the dimensions of that and we keep being diffused more and more, we are experiencing the filling of the Spirit. Now, how does He do that? With the Word of God. Colossians 3.16, the parallel, if you notice there. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You see that the singing there is a parallel to our text. And rather than being filled with the Spirit, you're being filled with the Word. So the Spirit strengthens and fills us so that we can lay hold on the love of Christ and experience it by means of the Word dwelling abundantly in you. Now, a rich person is a person who has excess. They, they're, they're, they're abundant. So a person that's being filled with the Spirit is letting Christ's Word dwell, dwell richly. But now notice what he said. He didn't say let religion dwell, theology dwell. That's a good thing. Systematic theology dwell. That's a good thing. Let the Word of Christ dwell. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly, which means it's the Word about Jesus that must dwell not the word about our systematic theology. Even there, it's Him that we're after, isn't it? Why do we have articles of faith? It's Him. It's the word about Jesus. How is God's word dwelling in you? He planted it there as a believer. It's there. The engrafted word which is able to save your soul, James says in James chapter 1. But it's like oxygen in your body. It's already in there. But you pull it in and breathe it out. Is the word about your Savior dwelling in a way that's producing understanding? In a way that you are buying the time out away from this present age. From its slavery and the grip of the God of this world. And using it your circumstances, to walk carefully to the glory of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Now, what would that look like? Now, that's the filling. What it looks like is the participles that follow. The result of that filling, its result of redeeming, understanding and filling is what? You're speaking to one another. The church gathers together and we're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. I think they spoke psalms to one another as well as sang them to one another. Singing and making melody in your heart. A melody is a, a sequence of musical notes that has a satisfying sound. See? And if we're walking in wisdom, what is it going to do for our singing in this building? Joyful speech, joyful singing, because we're filled with the love of Christ. Joyful singing doesn't mean you, everything's going well in your life. And there are no losses in your life. It just means you understand and you have the Word of Christ dwelling. So it can be joyful singing even when your heart is broken. See? Let's not confuse joy with a skip along with Jesus song every time. Like, you know, that kind of happy. We can be joyfully weeping while we're singing because there's a tune in the heart. The love of Christ. Joyful singing, joyfully giving thanks. Giving thanks means to praise God. We're joyfully giving thanks. Always. That requires the Spirit. That means when something difficult, challenging happens in your life, to be filled with the Spirit means it's punctuated with thanksgiving. Even though you may be crying. Even though you may be hurting terribly. You're giving thanks for all things. Not because of the thing itself, but because of who God and what He's doing in that difficult thing. Now, does anybody have a struggle with that? 
being strengthened with all might, being filled with the Spirit is what we need. And then finally, joyful submission. You say, well, the word joy is not there, but filled with the Spirit is. The Spirit gives us joy so that there's joyful submission to one another. That just means in the roles that God has given us. We are struggling against the God of this world who wants to fight against God's purposes in marriage, in family, in church, and in the workplace. He's against it. So redeeming, understanding, being filled produces a joyful submission that people see you joyfully submitting to the worst supervisor on the planet. Why? Because Christ is dwelling in you. The Word is dwelling. So may the Lord help us to walk in wisdom. How? Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Understanding what the will of the Lord is and being filled with the Spirit. Let's pray.